So tell us a little bit about yourself, Gaspar. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, I like philosophy. Um, I think that, uh, let's see, I think that philosophy uh, has a certain dysfunctional way of being attached to categories that um, often don't represent the actual arguments for the positions that the categories are talking about. So I think that it's important, regardless of what one's view is in philosophy, to uh, have some acquaintance with logic. Um, you know, I can go around saying that I am a, you know, I don't know, a determinist all day. But if that's all I say, it's kind of hard for someone to know why I'm a determinist. And then I might, you know, if I don't know anything about logic, I might spit out some really asinine argument for determinism. And so I think it would be more efficient if uh, someone knew logic and then they gave you their argument for determinism uh, and just saved the label. Uh, so that's kind of what I think is important in philosophy. And I think a lot of people get um, – because they open with the labels and they often don't necessarily pursue it further or, or at least in enough depth, um, that this process of argumentation – and I mean logical argumentation – that I talked about is often overlooked or left out. So um, – I think that the, um, uh, yeah, this uh, fixation with titles in philosophy is uh, a result and also um, a perpetuator of intellectual laziness. So, Gaspar, what got you interested in philosophy? This is where we'll get into the interesting stuff right away. So um, I started uh, uh, doubting the Christianity that I was raised on. Um, I would ask questions to the adults. Stop right, uh, there. Stop right there. Okay. All right. Yeah. What, Let's hear it. Yeah. What, um, what was the kind of Christianity that you were raised on? If you um, – could you – I mean, like, mm -hmm. yep. Okay, yeah, so yeah, go ahead. Um, lots of people in these communities have heard me talk about how I was raised on um, in an Amish community, um, and so that's uh, it's not as formal and ritualistic as a uh, as like say Catholicism or Orthodox Christianity. But okay, so fast forward a little bit to where. Um, my dad, uh, lived in the city, uh, and we, and me and my siblings lived with him. He got into orthodoxy heavily. And so, um, uh, yeah, so, the, so, so it was basically that I, I, I found that my questions would not be would usually not be answered or, or answered in a satisfactory way. Um, and then also within the Christian communities, whether it was Amish communities talking about other Amish communities or Orthodox Christians talking about other denominations, they were so uh, judgmental about what could be perceived as trifles, like, you know, how to do certain rituals, et cetera, uh, dogmas, uh, now, I know ideas 
are often of great consequence. So that was the other t intimidating thing. Uh, if, if these ideas are of great consequence, then um, it's kind of hard to know uh, which one, which denomination was the one that needed to be followed, uh, especially when there are so many powerful personalities behind each one, you know, claiming that, you know, all sorts of authority or credibility. So I learned to look past authority, credibility, and talking head figures who, you know, claim to, I don't know, be inspired by this or that. And, um, you know, start experimenting for myself with uh, my own philosophical thought and ponderings, but I was also going to a Catholic prep school by that time. And they, those usually are heavy in the liberal arts and philosophy stuff as well. And so, and there's a point where I was, you know, in high school and I was, I was really existentially confused because I thought, oh man, all this, all this Christianity is, is BS. And, you know, I really, sometimes you hit an existential rock bottom where you're like, you know what? Everyone's full of it. I know that at least, you know, and then I saw in a, a book and it was a very elementary logic book that was just for, for like a high school philosophy class. I saw the transitive property. It said A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. And I, and, and I thought, well, hold on. I can get behind that. Um, and so the story is a little bit longer, but, you know, uh, when I was 20, I learned symbolic logic. And I made sure to learn it like the back of my hand. And um, to me, that simplified a lot of philosophical issues. Because at the time, I was also reading different philosophers and trying to study philosophy one ism at a time and once i learned logic and and learned what it was not i went in with these assumptions that logic will be this thing that tells you what's true and that you learn these rules that are like the gears that turn the cosmos or something and realize it's not that they're they're very abstract and hollow shells of things and they leave you hanging uh you know they teach you these rules of inference but they leave you hanging as far as how to determine what is true so I realized, oh, this pretty much simplifies a lot of philosophical problems. You know, some German philosopher could write a thick tome. And at the end of the day, the question will be, can you make a sound argument about any of that? Maybe, you know, maybe the first, I don't know. So but what would it be fair to say from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you are part of a more uh liberal Amish group, maybe Mennonites or similar to that? Nope. No, we, uh, kerosene lamps. Um, oh, okay. so you were, okay. Um, mm -hmm. Dutch, German. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so you were the real deal. Uh, and they judged other Amish communities for driving vans to town to get right. various, goods and they'd be like huh they've really gone off the deep end they would actually call them liberals they said oh that community's gone liberal there you see them driving around in those vans <laughs> yeah <laughs> so by the time i got to the city and saw you know modern christians judging each other i was like y'all don't even know y'all like where i come from y'all are like you know degenerates <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of satan's walking um <laughs> pretty much <laughs> okay so i i want to prod into that a little bit more before we get in 
you know, to more of the philosophical stuff. However, um, any question that I ask, if you don't want to answer it, you don't want to go there, just say, no, I'm going to pass on that one. I, I, because I don't want to get too personal or, you know, bring up old things or stuff like that. Uh, was it uh, a community that uh, shunned you when you ultimately decided to leave or? No. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, I mean, they obviously don't agree that's when people leave, but, um, uh, I mean, we're, me and my siblings still go back and visit from time to time. Like, you know, during the COVID lockdown, it got so boring because, you know, everybody was just cooped up. I just decided to go that summer and uh, hang out in the Amish community, you know, so I could at least go outside and stuff, you know, be in nature. So um, instead of like, you know, only having the option to go a couple places around town. Yeah. So, and they were cool about it, you know, so. Well, that's cool. That's because I've heard, um, I've heard some horror stories from, certain Amish communities and a lot of people look at the Amish and they think they're this monolithic group and that couldn't be further, you know, from the truth. We, like you were talking about, I'm close here to Oklahoma and we have a very traditional Amish, Amish community there right around the corner from the Mennonites. So you have the Amish, you know, with the buggies and everything. And then the Mennonites, uh, with their tractors, they don't drive, you know, a whole lot of vehicles, but they drive the tractors like up and down the highways and everything else. And it's like, that's definitely a heathen right there. Um, so what, when you started doubting it, at what age would you say that you were when you'd finally just kind of been convinced that Christianity is not true? And was there a deciding factor there? Um, let's see. Uh, I think uh, around age 15, I was like trying to salvage it in all these different ways, you know, because, you know, I told my dad, I was like, hey, uh, I have a question about all this. You know, I get these like, I don't know, first cause arguments, you know, the bread and butter that you still see people saying on the Internet these days, things that resemble a cosmological argument but then it's still like okay well um how do we get to you know the christian god and specifically the orthodox faith from here um and i would like uh spend um time sort of pacing around uh trying to like rationalize i'd be like well you know maybe they're not right about all the details in these denominations but maybe god's like this force force in nature or something i don't know um, and there was a point where, uh, um, there was a point where I recognized that I was basically trying to contrive a solution instead of discover one. Fair enough. Um, and I'm sorry, I missed uh, What age did you say that was? So, well, 16 is when I finally decided that, um, regardless of whatever the state of affairs is, or whether it's terribly grim or not um i've got to be able to look at it 
to just I've got to be open to discover it um, without having preconceptions about it. Um, and I won't even begin the journey towards discovering it if I keep inventing what I think that discovery is. Right. So on that note, um, and this is purely anecdotal, but uh, I have noticed with a lot of my atheist friends, they were in that, you know, 14 to 17, 18 year old range when they finally just said, you know, I, I don't believe anymore. Uh, also, I've noticed overwhelmingly that, and for any of my atheist friends here or anybody that's listening to this, this is not a caricature of atheists. This is my experience. I'm in the southern United States. It may be totally different than atheists in other places, but an overwhelming number of it, or at least I've heard far more times than, you know, alternative explanations, um, there was some kind of uh, legalistic or fundamentalist church behind where they came out of. And the second common denominator is a lot um, developed a progressive or left-leaning socio-political stance and they couldn't reconcile that stance with uh, the kind of Christianity that they were raised in and kind of come to the conclusion that there's no way it can be true, you know. Were any of those a factor, do you think? Um, in... I've never cared about politics, and politics never had anything to do with okay. uh, this topic. Um, uh, frankly, I consider uh people who are uh, intellectually preoccupied with politics to I put them in the same bin as a fundamentalist Christian. I treat them with the same. I mean, I basically use the same dialogue strategies on them as I would with a precept. So, uh, well, well just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just so you know, um, I'm interested in politics, so screw you. Um, no, it's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's so many people are ideologues today and, and they, they really act like fundamentalists. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you average, yeah, yeah. It's just a messy topic. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I commit to, I commit to trying to talk to, to people, um, and reconciling. Um, uh, but, uh, I'm not going to I haven't seen a side of the fence that impresses me and I'm not going to throw in with one because it benefits me and then have to uh, turn a blind eye to the faults of that side. I'm not willing to take that on. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I wanted to go back for a second because there was a question that I wanted to ask um, before we get too far away from it in your Amish community, I know many of those communities uh, believe and will also teach that, you know, salvation is, you know, inextricably tied to the Amish community. And if you leave the community, you know, there's no salvation. And I've known many uh, Amish friends who 
they were, you know, kind of like an iron rod, and, and it's probably more the fundamentalist, legalistic kind of um, reformed, maybe, and not reformed in the Calvinistic sense, but the reformed Dutch, I think it was. Was that something that you experienced? Um, I don't know if it was as explicit as salvation had to be acquired within the community. It was more like, um, it was a little bit softer than that. It's that, you know, the world is a place full of temptation as the world as they called it, you know? Um, and so if they were, if people were driving cars, they were worldly. And if people were taking shortcuts with work, you know, trying to use tractors, trying to use too many tools, too much technology, then they were starting to engage with the world and yeah. So it was more like that kind of thing. All right. Um, that was the last thing about the Amish. I want, I just, that was kind of one of the things I was thinking about. So another thing that I think about often is with the overwhelming amount of my experience with atheists being in the teenage years, do you think at 16, 17, 15, sometimes 14, that the mind is developed well enough to actually evaluate um, the arguments on you know each side or uh, to even really make a decision to... Uh, become an atheist or or become a on the other side to become a christian because at 16 uh i'd I'd be ashamed to talk about half the things that i cared about and what i was doing at 16 and i just it's it's hard for me and and i'll be transparent and honest with you it's hard for me to look at somebody who deconverted from christianity especially a specific kind of christianity and you're kind of a unique case uh, and they ever since then, they've never been convinced that Christianity's true or gone back to it. And I just, I, I don't know how one at that age and the lack of development, you know, uh, in our cognitive abilities, it seems almost like as if one right in the most impressionable time, you know, from a toddler to being 20 something they make a decision like that and it's like that that becomes kind of part of their heuristic and who they are do you feel you and some people are more mature at that age than others do you feel you had a pretty good grasp and understanding of you know reality and and this whole you know existence of god question okay so um that is a good point to bring up is uh is a person in that age group can they even be trusted basically to wipe their ass is basically what you're saying. And um, I'd say typically no. Um, and I'm not the exception in all these other ways. I was a dumb teenager. However, some of us have an affinity and around that age is when I discovered my affinity for philosophy. In other words, you know, people word it differently. You know, some theists say, yeah, but there's gotta be something else out there. Right. And some of us have this intuition. The way I thought about it is, you know, I think there's an answer to be discovered, and I just kind of trust that it's going to make sense. And so I would rather discover it than try to invent it. Um, and in order to do that, I have to have a clean slate. So I had this conviction that there were things 
that there were things that could be known and that you have to be unbiased in order to discover them. So this was an area where I I developed uh, a, a, a genuine and uh, authentic conviction. But it is true that uh, people at that age and often into their 20s, for the most part, they're just repeating stuff and they're worried about what other people think about them. And in many facets, I was no exception. But this was my passion. You know, like you get some kids who are good at this, good at that, and you know, they're good musicians at an early age. This is what I really cared about. So the way I saw it is going through life not knowing what's going on is not not worth it. I I wanted to know, you know, I was the sort of person who, I, you know, I thought, yeah, well, if there was a red pill and this was the Matrix, I would take the red pill. I don't care how terrible the reality is. So, yeah. yeah that's um, – so, yeah, some good points. Um, one of the things I'd – one of the things that kind of came to mind when you were explaining that was um, – can't so first of all i like the i like the fact you use the word intuition because i'm a strong intuitionist um i think you know uh everything starts with intuition and then we do our epistemic duty you know to find rational defensible positions according to you know what our intuition is and ultimately we end back at intuition uh, what seems to be true to us with that how you had said something that kind of caught my attention can one because this is something that I try myself and pe- anybody who's you know heard me talk about you know uh, my theism and the path I've took uh, ad nauseum it's uh, it, I try to be as objective as possible but can one really truly be objective can we totally remove i mean we can't do it in a vacuum obviously but when you say objectively evaluate it because i want to agree with you i i want to say that i try to as much as i can but you would you would agree that no matter how hard we try we still have some biases and presuppositions, right? Yeah, so I agree. Um, it, it's kind of hard to make the case what is actually objective. And so I'll settle for something different instead. Um, I would like my judgments and my actions and, and, and such to be intentional rather than unintentional. So if we ask ourselves, what is actually wrong with biased thoughts and biased judgments? Well, it's that uh, by and large, they are often unintentional. And so um, even if we have predispositions towards certain subject matter or we come from places that, you know, have us think in a certain way, if if we keep it in mind and we act with intent, then it won't uh, then we won't um, be engaging uh, in the problematic unintentional behaviors that come from things like cognitive biases, et cetera. So it is nothing. no one is going to have the full like universal data set by which they can make inferences, and we're all going to have uh, these this imperfect uh, and narrow view of things. However, we don't want that to lead us to 
to make unintended decisions. And so I think it's important to understand what our biases are and, and, and act uh, with intent. So, yeah, I am willing to totally give up on the idea of objectivity um, and settle for intent instead. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic uh, analysis and explanation. I, I, I would um, definitely um, be favorable towards that position because I think that in order – you know, you like in you know anybody who spent any time in uh, historiography. Uh, if one doesn't, you know, because everybody thinks that history is like this this science, but there's a lot of art to it. And if one doesn't realize that we have presuppositions uh, or biases, we can't. You know, if you don't even recognize it, then how are you going to try and put it to the side to evaluate something? So I uh, appreciate your honesty there. And, and I did want to say real quick, um, I am extremely grateful uh, that you have come up here and been, you know, uh, for the transparency, the honesty and willing to take, you know, the questioning and things like that. Uh, and, and and kudos to you for that, um, you know, the, the tenacity and confidence and willingness, you know, to be open to us. So I really appreciate that, Gaspar. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, it's nice talking to you um, yeah. on, on a recorded stream. I don't I don't mind answering questions about my Amish past, but I'm sure you I, I'm sure you relate to this. Um, I'm a family man. And so like on a recorded stream too much about like me and my family life is, is maybe, I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that, uh, that, and that's why I wanted to kind of preface, you know, some of those questions with, uh, you know, anything that you don't want to answer or, or things like that, just say pass and, and we'll move right past it. There's, um, you know, so, yeah. What I want to know is, what is Christianity to you, your understanding of God, and what exactly is it that you're rejecting? Okay, so um, I, um, my face value take is that Christianity is a species of mythology, and my criticism of this particular mythology is that its members don't have the um, the awareness that it's a mythology. They consider it to possibly be an exception, and they, uh, in America, in my opinion, break their backs trying to verify evidence that is way, way back in the ancient times, or 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 trying to engage with arguments that um, uh, can be valid all day, but who knows if they're sound? Um, and uh, in my opinion. Uh, this they are missing the point of if I'm right and it's a mythology and it isn't this literal um, historical you know system of cosmology, uh, then their attention would be better spent treating it as a mythology because mythology is meant to be evaluated under a lens of literary devices and literary elements and 
it is, you know, there are people, and I am one of them, who think um, literary symbolism has a, a bigger role to play in human cognition and life than mere entertainment. Uh, sometimes uh, our stories and, and metaphors can be mirrors that uh, show us what we were thinking what we were thinking or, or remind us of opinions that we um, hold that maybe weren't front and center stage. Um, and so uh, if we do not see it as such, then we might miss out on the whole lesson in the first place. So I consider Christianity to be a myth, and now your average atheist is going to use that as a slight. That is not a slight for me. I love mythology, and I, I think mythology is useful. In fact, even though we think maybe we are a secular society that is removed from mythology, we've just replaced – our current mythology are things like meme culture and political narratives. So it doesn't go away. Um, and so that's what I think about it. Does that make sense? Yes, sorry, I was pouring another drink. This segment's brought to you by Wild Turkey, the original, not the 100 proof, it's too much. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you agree, though, uh, well, it doesn't matter if you agree or not, um, it, I'm sure you're aware that because something is in the genre or category of myth doesn't mean that it's fiction, Right. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, we could, we, we could say that, but also, um, for example, in poetry, um, or, or even in writing in general, if something is too literal, it's crass, you know, a, a writer's supposed to not spell everything out, but they're supposed to say as much as they can efficiently. Um, and uh, that is how literary symbolism is as well. And so if, if, if I'm going to say that if the mythological symbolism is to be interpreted at its face value and literal meaning, then that is going to be a crass interpretation that would have been better delivered in the form of just like an essay or something um, or, or something, something like that. And I understand that the Bible is a text, but uh if 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 the events and there are certain events, certain whole sections of the Bible that um, <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of hard to make sense of them without. Uh, I think I think the most um, charitable interpretation is a mythological one. You know, like I know you're not you, you say you are not a uh, young Earth creationist, okay? And so you probably say that Genesis is symbolic or something. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Don't don't straw man me, Gaspar. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. So, um, my position would be that first of all, the Bible uh, is not the is not a book. The Bible is a collection of literature, some that's meant to be historical, whether it's historical or not that's a different debate 
uh, but some of it is meant to be historical and a lot of Jews today hold to a lot of it is being his, uh, lots, a lot of parts of it being historical. Some of it's meant to be theological. Um, it, and I think that that's where, uh, th that's where I run into an issue. So my issue is if somebody is an atheist, I, so first of all, if, if I'm having a discussion with them and I let them define atheism, however they want, but I know that you, you know, as much time you spend in philosophy, atheism is typically the negation of theism. It's defined uh, by what theism is. And even though it's a negation, it's still a proposition. So what I would say is, let's concede that the whole Bible is myth. And myth in the mythos sense, that uh, it's even got a lot of fiction in it and all of this. How does it follow from that, that a God doesn't exist? Um, it doesn't necessarily follow that a God doesn't exist. Uh, and it doesn't follow that a God does exist. In fact, I don't know what follows from that. Okay, but that's honest, great answer. Because uh, there's the reason I ask that is because quite often when, when I have a discussion, it, 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 you know me and, and a lot of people here do. And if anybody's going to listen to this later who doesn't, um, I, you know, I don't I, I'm not an apologist. I, I defend my views uh, because I want my views to be defensible, rational Um and with that, uh, I have a lot of atheists that I interact with that um, they go straight to contradictions in the Bible. The flood couldn't be scientifically true. Um, the earth can't be six to 10,000 years old. And they don't realize that there's a lot of assumptions built into you know, those statements, but still at the end of the day, you toss the whole Bible out. doesn't mean atheism's true. It doesn't mean theism is false. So what got you from rejecting Christianity to no God at all, not even a deistic God or some kind of pantheist, you know, consciousness or uh, how did you go from rejecting to Christianity to just saying no God exists? Um, that might not have been as far as I go. Okay. Um, it, it might have been more of a, I'd say what's more accurate is a Russell's teapot situation. It's like, okay, I don't, um, I'm not convinced by this. So uh, until I have reason to be convinced by it, I'm going to move on to other things that I think could be convincing. Um, and uh, and so let's see. There's a lot of different definitions of God. So, like you mentioned, these other, you know, pantheism or whatever. I know some pantheists who they say the universe is God. And so this is where kind of some of my prag pragmatism comes in. Um, I like my made-up ideas 
to be useful. And so I don't know what the use is. I don't know what I get out of labeling the universe as God. Maybe that's good in a literary work or a myth because anthropomorphization is one of the best ways to communicate in, in those contexts. But in others, I might just keep calling the, the universe the universe. And so um, it's not that I say there is no pantheistic God. It's that I don't see the use in rebranding the universe. So that's like, what's the case with that, right? That that instance. And then there's this whole spectrum of all these other definitions of God. And they're all kind of with me on a case-by-case basis. At, but what I would say the common thread is um, that at least in any deductive sense and probably in an inductive sense, I don't see anything leading to them. Okay. But now what you mentioned is atheists going straight to contradictions in the Bible with me. If the Bible is seen as a myth or uh, a collection of um, literary works, or it is interpreted as metaphor, then the contradictions are not a problem for you. So that's why I tell my, my Christian friends that um, uh, if, if you take it literally, then you get the hammer of <laughs> logic. <laughs> um, if you take it metaphorically, you are completely off the hook, in my opinion. Well, you can, ha- you can have your trinity. You don't have to explain why it is or isn't a contradiction. Uh, literary symbolism is often just literally just, just contradiction after paradoxical contradiction, and that's part of the strength of it. It adds meaning to things. And I don't know how people don't recognize that that's what some of this stuff is. But you know, if I turned around and I tried to make sense of one, one of these kinds of poems, then, yeah, I'd be kicking my own ass. But um, so that's my option for, for, for the Christian is, you know, they you know, uh, take it metaphorically. And then, you know, have a big sigh of relief because now you don't have as much work as you used to have. Or if you take it literally, um, deal with the contradictions, which it's almost it almost ends up being kind of an indirect proof sort of things. Like with indirect proof, they say, you know, oh, if you derive a contradiction, then uh, we automatically know that can't be the case. Now, this is true in classical logic, at least. And for some reason, my theistic friends are married to consistency, logically speaking. So, yeah, that's that's how I look at that. So I understand most atheists go for those contradictions as a um, as a you know big fatality. I don't think that's what it is. Um, I think it is a a myth, and that those contradictions are okay. But what's not okay is that people don't understand the material they're working with, and so they don't realize it's a myth, and they treat it like something else. So there's, there's, oh, there's so many places I want to go. Um, well, first I want to say, um, after listening to you restate what I said back to me, it seems that there's a way uh, that that could have been interpreted uncharitably. And I wanted, you know, to to clarify and, 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 and apologize Um I didn't mean to imply you went straight from rejecting Christianity to being an atheist. I was more wondering the journey, you know, once you rejected Christianity, how you got to atheism. 
Oh, okay. So you weren't you you weren't you weren't saying you know how did you yeah. take this and make the, draw this conclusion? How, right, it's more right. how did my ideas evolve? Okay, I understand. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, after you had kind of replied and, and restated it, I was like, oh, that's not what I'm. Okay. So, so then yeah. let me. So then let me answer that actual question. Um, it's kind of like I guess a you know a um you know ex girlfriend or something or you know if you're a girl listening is an ex-boyfriend it's like okay hurts for a while you're still thinking about whether they're gonna call and then you know one day you're not thinking about it anymore <laughs> that's what yeah. it is yeah that's fair that's uh, yeah i get that um you know going through a uh deconstructing a deconstruction myself which i on a little side note and tangent i've been instructed by not directly by one of my philosophy friends on Facebook that deconstruction has nothing to do with losing faith or changing your view and went into the Renaissance and all of this. And I'm like, bro, whatever. Anyway, uh, so a couple of things I wanted to clarify and maybe even correct you on. One, to say, take it literal or metaphorical is a false dichotomy. The second one is, uh, we absolutely should take it literal. But what I mean by literal is as literature. And when we approach it as literature, there are, uh, and this is more for the audience than you, um, for anybody else that's listening. I, I know you know a lot of this stuff. Uh, when we approach, especially ancient texts and a collection of texts, there's a, there is a science and an art to it. And the science is there's a method, a minimal method that's required. The art is actually in the interpretation and, and where to put things and how they fit and all this. You have to take, and we have, you know, specific standards that has to be followed. You have to know what, or you, you let me take that back you don't have to know you have to try as much as possible to put yourself in the position of this culture which is totally different than ours it was collectivist it wasn't individualistic like ours uh there was um you know there were so many different social mores you know things we think are sins here wouldn't have been there and there it's here so we, ha we have to approach it as literature, and when we approach it as literature, we need to know what the genre of the book is. For example, the book of Hebrews is a preaching book. It's called a, uh, a homiletic. Well, homiletics, preaching books, were just like the pastor on Sunday giving a sermon. He doesn't mean for every single little word that he says to be true. It's the theological message that comes out of it. He's painting a picture. He's giving parallels. He's doing all these things. So we need to know what the genre is. We need to try and see what the author was trying to convey and how the people at that time with their understanding would have received that. And if there's any specific things such as like with Paul's letters to the churches, Paul was speaking specifically to certain churches with certain issues. 
Well, in literature, you have what's called literary devices. The literary devices are, there's metaphor, there's simile, there's hyperbole, uh, there's um, the, you have the, the, the face value interpretation, uh, you have allegory, there's all kinds of literary devices that are used uh, in literature, and that's no different for ancient texts as it is now. In fact, it's even a little more difficult this is a this is not a failure of you and and reading scripture or or taking scripture this is a failure of the church because with protestantism came an increasing anti-intellectualism and this idea that we can take this all of these ancient cultural texts put them in our language put them in a book and then we can all go home and read this book and somehow the Holy Spirit is magically going to illuminate to us the truth. And uh, I won't even get into the whole history of how that came about. So I would agree we have to take it literally as literature. We have to take into account all the things that I'd laid out. There is myth in Scripture. It's not all myth. Um I don't think you're not a Jesus mythicist, are you? Uh, let's see. So uh, I don't know whether Jesus existed, and I can neither confirm nor deny it. Um, and if I was a Christian, that wouldn't be a problem for me because, you know, I would see him as a mythological figure. Oh, I wouldn't. No, 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 no. I wouldn't even be a Christian. Come on, Gaspar. It's okay. Let me. All let right, me, all right. So then, so then, that's the bullet you bite. You know, if you have to take it literal, then you have this no, no, massive no. skyscraper of problems. No, no, wait a minute. Hold on. What I was going to say is, um, I know what you meant by that, and I didn't parse out exactly what I meant by mythicism. What I mean is, there more than likely was a historical Joshua, which would have been Hebrew, Yehoshua. And he was a rabbi, and he was popular, and he was charismatic, and he had a following. I don't mean that we have to take all of the... I mean, we're, I'm talking about just starting at ground zero. You know, we don't have to agree that all the miracles happened, that he resurrected, and all these things. I'm just talking about as a historical figure. Uh, you you wouldn't agree that it's more than likely that uh, Jesus existed at least as a historical figure that these stories uh, spurned out of? Yeah, so I, I just don't know. Okay, I have no way of knowing that, in my opinion. And uh, anything anyone's ever told me about it... Uh, witnesses this that the other I don't know whatever and okay so I understand you um, and I want this to be more about you know uh, learning about Gaspar and his views and not necessarily a debate uh, but I mean are there are you critical of knowing figures from history period or is this a special case with Jesus? You just not rely, you don't rely on like historical methods or different kinds of historiography. How do you approach that? 
Um, so, like, with things like Adolf Hitler, I think he was probably real because we have footage of him and stuff. And, you know, uh, now the further we go back, I don't know, let's first classify historical knowledge as empirical, somewhere under the umbrella of induction. And so we need you know, observable cases from which to extrapolate our inductive conclusion. Uh, and we all know that there's no uh, cut and dry way to do that. But as we go further and further back, our, our set of evidence becomes less and less reliable. I think most people would probably agree on that. Um, that's not to say there is nothing to discover. Like, for example, if we go to where Rome was and we discover a clay pot and we use our dating tools, we can be like, okay, this clay pot is from this time. But then, like, you know, if we want to know whether Socrates' ideas were perfectly transla you know, translated from or Plato, you know, because Socrates didn't write stuff down, but, but his students did. I don't know, you know? So... Um, That's uh, and, and, so, and hold up, because I am a pragmatist, I don't need to know this stuff. Um, all I need is some some explanation for how things got here. It's like, yeah, I, I want some backstory to start with, even if it's even if I don't know if it's completely reliable. I want to know how this, you know, America got here, and I want some story. And if I find out that it's completely slanted and parts of it get debunked or something, I won't be surprised. So that's how I look at historical knowledge. So, yes, we need it. I, I don't write off the whole feed. I'm not like a history denier. It's just I handle it in a soft way. It's like, yeah, I need a backstory for this. I need a backstory for that. Um, but, you know, but, you know, uh, who, you know if, if it turns out to be completely slanted, it was better than no backstory, right. you know? So, okay. yeah, yeah there's that. Yeah, not, but, but then not, it makes it hard for us to ground things like, okay, was there, you know, who was Homer who wrote the Iliad? Who, you know, who are these different figures? Yeah. To me, that's not what matters. To me, the Iliad is what matters. And so, a historical Jesus, ah, that doesn't matter to me. The the stories in the Bible, the resurrection, etc., that's what matters. Whether it literally happened, I say that shouldn't matter. But that's a self-made problem from Christians, in my opinion. Okay, that, that's fair, and I, I don't want to take up all your time on the existence of Jesus. I do want to talk about the pragmatism uh, part of it a little bit, but before we get to that, what exactly, so, I mean, you don't have to, you know, give us like a, a super long, nuanced kind of idea, but what would be kind of your framework of epistemology what what would you how would you go about saying that and this isn't meant to uh you know push back on you or nothing like that i just want to understand more you know where you're coming from in your do you have a specific epistemology you hold to or or, or an accumulation or or a specific justification or a truth theory or something like that what do you consider truth and knowledge, um, at least, you know, at your personal experiential level. Okay, so truth, knowledge, and epistemology. Um, 
these are things that uh, you know they have many. There are many different alternative definitions of of truth, knowledge, and logic as well, and systems, etc. And so, um, uh, upon trying to establish one over over the other, we find ourselves having to defend uh, the assumptions that they're founded on. So some of us fall into trying to reify these assumptions into brute facts, uh, self-evident truths, or absolutes, etc. Thank um, you for the but, shout out. Yeah, but uh, but the um, the destination is ultimately the same. You know, uh, they're not able to. Uh, we're not able to defend, for example, the axioms of logic. Nor should we try. In my opinion, there are people who you know they engage in all sorts of backbreaking acrobatics to try to do it. Um, but I don't have to back up logic. You know, precepts tell me you have no grounds for intelligibility or, or reason. It's like, oh, well, I can't back up logic, but that's not a me problem. That's an everybody problem, but it's okay because I use logic. You know, I can use it. I don't need to, I don't need to prove that its assumptions are metaphysically true. And so my point is, um, uh, I, I can use any of the various um, models of truth or epistemologies if they solve specific problems or answer certain questions. And um, I, I simply am not looking for which one is true because I consider our ideas to not have uh, substance. Man. Um, wow. There's so many different ways I want to go. <laughs> just just kind of prodding and, and trying to uh, better understand. Um, how much time did you allot for this before I just keep going and going? I, I can hang around maybe for another hour. Uh, my my uh, siblings want me to play Elden Ring online later, but uh, okay. you know, we, can, uh, we can keep going. Okay. So <laughs> I know some of these questions I'm going to ask you require – nuance um but i would be more interested in just the simplest answer you could give as we go through them to uh, because i'm not going to you know i'm not looking to to jump on to your position because i you know disagree with it or or whatever i just i just want to know the framework does ontology matter to you at all yeah sure okay uh, you don't have to give a specific, you know, um, truth theory, but do you hold to there be, <clears throat> would you say you, you line up more with, I know you, you said, you know, a pragmatist, but in the actual truth theory, would you line up more with correspondence, coherentist or, or just pragmatism? Um, uh, let's see. I honestly, when, when considering whether something is true, I, I honestly don't actually consider any of those theories of truth. Um, I just, you know, I just say something's true. Okay. That's, you fair. know, yeah, that's no, that's totally fair. That's, um, um, and you know, anybody that's, you know, in the audience or may listen later, uh, what I mean in the simplest form is, you know, uh, for uh, let me explain why. Yeah, let me explain why. It's because let me explain why. Because oh, okay, um, go ahead. I, th I think theories of truth are nominal and they're, you know, they're things we've made up. And so if I'm going to make stuff up, I'd rather make it up with fewer parts. And so, you know, 
I'll say something's true if I think the other person's going to know what I'm talking about, and I'll flesh it out. If I um, if someone doesn't know what I'm talking about, and if I have to use a theory of truth, then I'll probably like reach for the nearest one. So yeah, like okay. that. Yeah, that, that's fair. I uh, some of these things. Um, so I want to. I'm I'm actually going to uh, add this to my podcast platform. So I just some of these definitions and things that uh, you know the podcast listeners may not know what I'm talking about. Uh, I in your idea of what you're talking about is true or truth. Um, I can get on board with that. I, I I'm not a dogmatist about you know really anything, especially in epistemology because it's so controversial. All the positions, but what I meant by uh, coherentism for those everybody else that's listening is in the simplest form it's going to be an oversimplification but coherentism is um, if it seems to line up with the web of beliefs that you already have you kind of have like a network of beliefs um, that have seen to be uh, reliable and it, it what it means is, you know, truth is that that coheres with correspondence theory would be um, that which corresponds with reality. Uh, that's the simplest form. That's the most uh, it's a very oversimplification in my experience. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Gaspar. Most people intuitively hold the correspondence theory. And I think most philosophers did. I've read hold to a correspondence theory and in pragmatism it's more of a new uh, theory of truth is uh, pretty much if it, it, it so there's a variation <clears throat> there's actually uh, one that I'm more sympathetic to now which is it kind of marries coherentism and pragmatism if it seems to work it's pragmatic and it coheres with the web of beliefs that seems to be pretty reliable to you, uh, then we can call that truth. So with that out of the way, to you, would you say, and I know this is going to be um, kind of like splitting the atom, but if you had to go with one or the other, uh would you say truth is objective or truth is relative? And before you answer that, uh, Canadian, we're not taking anybody up on stage uh, right now. We can do it later and ask questions. Uh, we're recording this for a podcast and interview with Gaspar. Okay, so you want to know... Which theory of truth I would choose? Well, well, more simply, instead of even having to get into those nuances and, and everything, it, would you simply say truth is objective? And what I mean by objective is uh, that it is the fact of the matter that this is the case, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, or would you say it's relative in the sense that uh, something can seem to be true to me, 
while something else can be can seem to be true to somebody else. Yeah, and so so you want me to tell you which one I would take, or you don't you don't have to pick one or the other, but which one would you lean more towards? Um, I have an affinity towards the towards truth being. I don't know. Relative's pretty soft. I'd say subjective, but you you only gave me the options of relative. So if I have to choose, I'll say relative. But what I'm going to admit is that I think there are problems. There are ways I can be owned immediately by taking either one of these options. Absolutely. And I'm not going to jump on that opportunity because I'd rather flesh it out and and give you the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) But what I want to say is, you know, this is just me taking the options you're giving me, but like ultimately my, since I think there are problems with uh, taking either one of these options, I said, we bite those bullets. We not what we not wonder which one is true. We remember that we made these definitions and we just use them. The only excuse for these ideas is that we use them and if they reliably do what we want. So I'm not concerned with which one is actually true. So if you ask me which one I lean for, and it doesn't mean which one I think is objectively true, well, then I'll say the one that is uh, helping me address the problems I'm trying to solve at the moment. Fine. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of like a, 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 a meta-pragmatist, and I just made that up, but kind of a meta-pragmatist. It's, while it's not necessarily just pragmatism, uh, you would it, uh, and I'm I'm going to try to steal man your position tell me if I'm wrong but it it, it would be case independent or case dependent um, you're going to evaluate each situation instead of just giving this absolute overarching um, you know dogmatic view on what truth is you're going to evaluate and make your decision based on a case by case basis. Yeah, yeah. And furthermore, I'd say that if I thought that one of these models was intrinsically real or something, then I would be averse to the variation in the world that that model is not suitable for. Right. And okay. these are problems that realists create for themselves, in my opinion. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, I mean, I'm I'm a realist about a lot of things, but I I, I understand the baggage that comes with that, and it's uh it's something something I'm still working through. Um, so with that, um, there was something I wanted to ask on that before I moved on in my. ADHD just like let's see so so you asked me, me which, right in the middle of my brain yeah so you asked me if I think truth is objective or relative um yeah. which I would lean towards and that was probably gonna go somewhere okay I remember what I was gonna say there there's a reason I didn't put subjective in there and all right I may be I'm I'm I may be on the fringe thinking this way uh I've seen sentiments of it from other philosophers but subjectivism to me is just telling me somebody's psychological state not the epistemic state not the you know the, there's no uh, uh epistemic content there or 
any kind of, you know, possible ontology or something like that. I may be totally out of bounds on that. But when somebody says something is subjective, well, I would agree under every circumstance because everything is to an extent subjective it's up to us it's up to the subject it's we have a psychological uh, evaluation of things and we use the psychological evaluation to come to a conclusion you know through some kind of uh epistemic path or you know to go even further you know establish the epistemic path and then a possible ontology for you know how th- that truth or or whatever it is can exist epistemically so i try to avoid uh subjectivism as much as possible now i'm starting to kind of reevaluate that a little bit because of the way uh lance bush uh and and i can't go one interview without talking about lance i just i just love him um, but it's because his whole different perspective of, you know, adding psychology, you know, psychology of morality to the metaphysics and, and, and the epistemology that it's all wrapped up into, you know, ethics, whether it's meta ethics, normative ethics, um, axiology, whatever it is. Uh, so that was the reason I avoided using subjectivism. So my next question would be if. And this is just a thought exercise or a thought experiment. Don't, you know, don't press it too hard. I just want to kind of illuminate something, see how you deal with it, uh, because I know you're very, you know, rational and uh, thought out person. Holding to whether it's some kind of metapragmatic position or pragmatism or something like that, if 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 100 believers in god were to come to you and say well the belief in god works for me it it fills all of these voids it gives me explanatory scope and hypothesis uh, or explanatory hypothesis uh, you know with different philosophical positions it works for us, and there's a hundred of us, and there's just you. What would your response to them and their claim that God exists because it does work for them and, and works as a an explanatory scope, an explanatory hypothesis? What would that conversation be like from you? I'll give you two answers. Let's say that... Um... Let's say that I don't have the fortitude to uh, resist peer pressure, and uh, my opinion does change on those accounts, okay? Um, And I do end up believing in God or thinking it's pragmatic because of those numbers. That'll lead us to my second answer, which is I don't think that that makes it objectively the case. Right. I would, and you know what? I would actually agree with you right there. But... And, and and what I'll say though, what I'll say is that if 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 you're if you're granting for a moment my pragmatic view, I'll just say I, I won't even be asking whether it's objectively true. I'll be hmm, 
It must be something about this Christianity. It's doing something. It's working. Maybe it's not doing what they say it's doing, but there's something happening. So, you know, just like, you know, I almost treat it as a certain type of evolution. Uh, you see some strange creatures that are the way they are, and my assumption is that it's been sort of refined through a long numbers game, and it's here before us for a reason. You know, I'm not saying a magical reason. Maybe it's just like a mimetic evolution type of reason. And so that's how I look at Christianity. And so to clarify one thing, a piece of trivia, I am not an atheist who tries to deconvert theists. I'll give my honest opinion to the theists, um, but I don't try to flip them. And I don't hold the view that religion is this blight or boil on humanity. So I actually prefer that people, as I said at the beginning, be aware of their dispositions. Um, you don't have to try to change them. You don't have to try to be a person without dispositions. Just make sure you act intentionally because we see cognitive biases. They, they are a way that our dispositions cause us to act without intention. And so um, I would say I don't want people to change. Um, their dispositions, if in, unless you want to intentionally, but just be aware of them and from them act with intent. And I think if you act from your dispositions with intent, the results will be more wholesome than our unintentional biased actions. And so um, I just – this kind of ties back into me think, suspecting that Christians are maybe not fulfilling their intentional um, – engagement with Christianity because they're maybe not completely in the know that it is, well, as you wanted to reword it, um, literary, um, as literature, uh, some are taking it too literal. And so maybe they are not using it. It's like they're holding, they're not, they've got a hammer in their hand, but they're not using it right. They're holding the hammer by the head. They're trying to nail the nail with the hammer or something. That's what I think Christians are doing with their Christianity. And so, um, yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, I understand what you're saying there and, and, and I would like to, you know, address that. But before we get to that point, I'm, I'm a bit confused and more than likely it's me, not you. Um, so you're going to have to talk to me. Like I'm five years old. Um, <laughs> what I mean is, um, why did you bring up in a pragmatic scenario that uh, after you had seemed to admit that pragmatism is what mattered to you, truth is relative in some sense, and I don't know. I know I kind of forced you into, uh, you know, an A or a B there. So feel free to kind of nuance that more if you want to. But you you had agreed or, or seemed to say that truth is relative. It's it's case dependent. And it's more about the pragmatism that you're concerned about. So I'm wondering why you brought up objectively true when I brought the scenario with the Christians who said that it was pragmatic and obviously, you know, true relative to the case that they were talking about um would you say given that that um 
they in fact hold truth because it's pragmatic and it's relative to their experience and, and their cases and and seems to work in those experiences or am I did I miss something or 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 whatever. I mean it, it just if you could, you know, respond, nuance, whatever you gotta do because yeah, you know, like I said, I'm a little slow sometimes, so No, so um uh yeah, so if we if we took the the view of pragmatism and then we said, Oh, a hundred Christians they say this, yada 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 and then let's say that let's say that I say, Oh well that's convincing. I'm just saying that um it may not lead where I mean, I've heard things like this. I don't know if this is what you're using it for, but but I don't know what it does to actually prove anything. You know, it, it might mean that. Real quick, let me let me let me clarify something. Um, I think you said something important there. I'm not talking on. I'm not talking in a sense of convincing people. I'm just yeah, talking strictly okay. in the sense of kind of what we've defined as what truth is. Would you yeah. say that it is true because it's pragmatic and it's relative to their situation? Oh, okay, okay. Now I understand it. I maybe didn't understand before. Um, so yeah, by uh, I'll say that. Um, uh, so let me explain. I'm very tolerant to alternative models. I like classical logic. I also like paraconsistent logic, which is completely contrary. You know, and so. Um, and and people will say, how do you reconcile those? And I was like, oh, they're they're only true after you've assumed their assumptions. So I'll say that that um, Christianity can be true after you assume its assumptions. Um, however, um, it's, it's, since the standard is pragmatism, I'll question the functionality because the Christian or the t- typical Christian needs to also, for some reason, has this need to rule out all other alternative models. So it'd be fine with me. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd let the Christian system be true because I will let systems be pragmatically true since I don't, since I think truth is, you know, arbitrary. Um, but the lack of functionality really comes where the Christian then sets out to refute all other alternative models. When in fact, all of our models are built on assumptions that ultimately we can't defend. And so, ter- so taking a model um, that you like that is built on assumptions and then turning around and trying to point to other systems and say that those systems are founded on assumptions or this, that, and the other, um, that doesn't work. All right. Now, appealing to pragmatism, if you want to, if you want to try to make the case that Christianity actually does what you want it to do. Um, and that the other models do not, then um, that's the route I would take. But then that's a whole discussion of whether Christianity actually does what you want it to do. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean that's that that small part of this conversation and topic is something we could actually have a whole conversation on. So, uh, and I'd be totally open to that in the future. But I want to be fair to you and not bog you down in you know different truth theories epistemology and things like that because i i want to know more just about gaspar and not necessarily does gaspar have every single philosophical view worked out um yeah so what i like about being a pragmatist is i don't have to have all the answers um i can be very open about what i don't know um and 
All I have to do is use things. I don't have to invent this working model of the universe. You know, well, all I have to do is look at what I know right now and recognize uh, that it's not this substantive thing, but it's this uh, this utility that I need to make sure I'm getting value from or using properly. And and to understand that if I think that it is true, especially exhaustively true or real, then um, I might be averse to uh, the situations and phenomena where that tool or model um, is not working. Right. Okay, cool. Um, so, so, right. And it, I would actually, um, believe it or not, agree a lot with that position because like you, you know, I often, uh, people who aren't familiar with philosophy, you know, when they, they talk about, well, what are you doing philosophy? You know, blah, 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 blah. So uh, the picture I paint for them is take a car window and crack a car window and you're going to have thousands and thousands of little cracks and little pebbles of glass and this and that. Take one crack, just one little bitty crack out of those thousands and thousands of cracks and a philosopher will spend their entire career on one crack. So, I most definitely don't have everything worked out. So, like you, in the areas that I haven't spent a lot of time studying, reading, and uh, thankfully being ADHD, one of the things I can do is bounce from philosophical subject to philosophical subject. But what that does is it makes me a jack-of-all-trades and a specialist in none. Um, so I could tell you a little about a lot of things, but not a lot about a little things. So I rely on pragmatism. Um, that was a word that I would deny, rebuff, or, you know, try to avoid at all costs because it seems to imply, which I don't agree with, but it seems to imply as a theist that some realists positions have to be true and there has to be ontological or not even <clears throat> or in ontology some kind of metaphysical grounding and for my christian friends out there who hasn't spent a lot of time in philosophy ontology and grounding or metaphysical grounding are not synonymous uh so with that said when i don't when it's areas that I don't, what works for me or seems to be true, well, then that's what I take. So I have a sympathetic position to pragmatism in a sense because we all do. You know, we're going to do the two worst things in the world in philosophy is or seems to be, you know, like cuss words is uh, induction and pragmatism. But the fact of the matter is we live our life every single day thinking that we know things inductively uh, and we know what's going to happen tomorrow for the most part. And when tomorrow comes and everything works like we thought we knew it was going to work, well, shit, it was pragmatic. It works. Um, so unless you wanted to say something else about that, I wanted to kind of pivot a little bit towards 
the more mystical part of your philosophy. Yeah, so we're on the same page about that, um, what you just said. So you can move on if you want. Rock on, yeah. I didn't. You and I, we can spend hours talking about different philosophical positions, um, you know, and at the end of the day, I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong. So we might as well just move on. Uh, (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So. For everybody who doesn't know, uh, Gaspar at least holds to, and I don't want to straw man you or put words in your mouth, but would you say more of a secular philosophical approach to Buddhism? Um, yeah, yeah, to a degree. Yeah. What was it about, and I got to throw this in there, and this is just going to be a this is going to be a low blow. All um, right, let's hear it. It's totally uncalled for, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> this is funny already for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you hold to? Okay, so given your position on Jesus, Christianity, mythology, and all these things, why would you? Well, I, damn it, I already see a way out of it. Uh, but you it have be this, this teacher who taught these um, philosophical and, and, and kind of mystical, you know, depending on what variation. Well, let me, let me back up a second. Would you say you're more Taoist than Buddhist? No, not necessarily. Okay, okay, you just kind of look at the wisdoms and writings of Taoism, because I know we were talking about that. Uh, So my understanding is there's not a single writing from the Buddha until like 2,000 years after the Buddha. Is it just the philosophy that appeals to you, and and it doesn't matter if the Buddha existed, or uh, take that football and, and run it into the end zone? Yeah, so both of those last two things. Um, if you read what they call the Pali Canon, they're these supposed dialogues between the Buddha and his speaker uh, and his students. But there's a lot of repetition and like uh, you know a lot of not exactly rhymes, but you know how old dialogues used to or poems had rhymes and that that was a memorization apparatus. These texts were written in ways that had obvious amended c- conventions. Uh, to facilitate the ability to memorize them. And there is no telling uh, whether they are historical accurate, historically accurate. And um, I would say in a philosophy that says that things lack substance or identity, um, the idea of a, there being a historical Buddha is irrelevant. Right, fair enough. And I thought that was the position he was going to take, but... I knew if I didn't ask it, I'd get all kinds of emails. Why didn't you ask him about Buddha being real and, and all these reading writings later? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. because I know you, I know it's it's more about the uh, philosophical, you know, kind of. And so I want to I want to say something to you. Yes. This dilemma I'm putting forward to the Christian is not. It's not this personal singling out. This is something I buy myself. 
This I'm sorry, I didn't catch that last part. What did you say? This is this this is a this is a dilemma I, I I give to myself as well. Oh, okay. All right, cool. So you're not one of those um, God hating, sin loving, uh, special pleading kind of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So so to me to me what's appealing is that there's this philosophy um and to me it's a philosophy that makes a lot of sense of other other things that otherwise would be these big futile head scratchers in western philosophy um and we can go into that you can ask me as much about that as you want um and then uh they uh there are, are these practices um you know the meditation practices that a person can do um and so there's this sort of invitation in Buddhist philosophy and this, you know, given the philosophy itself that, um, that, uh, things lack substance, it doesn't accomplish anything to say that you are Buddhist. It really doesn't, especially when they, when it's a, uh, a philosophy that says that the, the self lacks substance. So, so like, what does it mean to say that you are, uh, what really matters is, that you have a certain understanding of the philosophy um, and that, and that you do these practices. So, um, right. to, so to me, that's, that's, that was what, that was one thing appealing about it is that it was more of an invitation. Like, look, don't, don't take my word for it. Try these things, and, you know, see for yourself. Right. So I wanted to address one thing that, that you said that I think is extremely important. And then after I address that, I want to do kind of just a quick rapid fire uh, without giving a whole lot of nuance. I want to ask you a few questions just to see, you know, where you land in the, you know, this philosophy. And uh, with that, so without, con you know, confusing everybody with laying out a five minute agenda. I wanted to say one thing. You brought up a very good point, and that is the oral tradition of Buddhism. Uh, I like the fact that you are as consistent as you are. I like the fact that I can already see the pragmatism that you hold to bleeds straight into um, this philosophy because of the pragmatic nature and the benefits of meditation and, and introspect. Uh, and we can talk more about that in a little bit because I draw a lot of parallels between what originally prayer was in Christianity with meditation. But I want to go back and say, I love that you recognize in this oral tradition that there are what's called mnemonic devices. And for those who don't know, mnemonics is the study of memorization. And this is actually one of the points that I point out to biblical literalists and fundamentalists if you look at and we i'm not going to address all the scripture i we don't have to go you know back to christianity and stuff like that because i'm more interested in your position but i think you brought something up that's 
that is so important it needs to be illuminated. And the argument is that I give is uh, if you look at the creation narrative in Genesis, and that's all I'm going to talk about. I don't not, I don't care about the rest of Genesis. It is a perfect mnemonic. And what I mean by that is if you can imagine an oral culture who would pass down mythologies mixed in with histories of the people, uh, their understanding of how the world and reality works, and you have a cursory understanding of mnemonic devices, even the fundamentalists can't deny um, once it's illuminated properly and, and they really kind of understand the point. If you look at the six-day creation, you can imagine the uh, teacher the community leader, the rabbi, whatever it is. So he'll hold up one finger, and he would say, and you can even take the finger and part it into three pieces where the finger bends with the two um, creases in the finger. So he holds up a finger, and then he goes, on this day with all three parts, you know, the finger, God did this, this, and this. And then you go the next finger. On this day, God did this, this, and this. And it's a physical demonstration of a uh, kind of a, uh, a, a trio of information that can be relayed to, you know, the physical process of, you know, putting the fingers up and going through the different indentions. So on the third day, God did this, this, and this. On the fourth day, God did this, this, and this. On the fifth day, God did this and this. Uh, and then you, you know, you go to the other finger. And the, the reason being is because with the ancient Hebrew, they had a very limited vocabulary. And although Gematria came about more famous later on after Hellenism, they still were very numerically driven with their language. You go to the second chapter of Genesis, and it goes through the creation story again in the very same name, uh, manner. And that was the whole point of the creation narrative and repeating the creation narrative is they are, when I say they're perfect mnemonic devices, I mean they literally fit the perfect definition of what a mnemonic device is to have this memorization so that they can pass it on in an easy way. Jumping forward, that was the whole reason Jesus talked in parables. It, it wasn't necessarily to confuse everybody or, or be this super poet or things like that. He was trying to convey messages in a poetic way through stories where the, it would resonate and they could remember it and pass it on. Uh, so I think that's a lot of things, you know, going back to like we were talking about earlier, Gaspar, with the literary devices and all that, I didn't want to jump into those nuances at that time. But since you brought that up, I, I, I kind of wanted, wanted to address that. If you want to say something on that, uh, go ahead. And if not, I will rapid fire with a few questions to kind of hone out your position. 
Yeah, um, no, no, I, I, I don't have anything to object to with what you just said. Okay, sweet. Um, everybody heard it here. Gaspar just converted to Christianity. Um, no, it's so. Are you an idealist? Uh, no. Okay. Um, are you a dualist? Um, nope. Are you any kind of pantheist, panentheist, uh, objective pantheist? It doesn't necessarily have to be a god, but maybe a, a collection of consciousness or something like that. Um, no. Okay. Um... Do you believe in reincarnation? Um, that's something I think is metaphorical uh, and uh, has become superstitious. So, uh, no. Okay. Uh, I have some interesting things to say about that. Uh, first of all, in a system that says uh, that there's no inherent identity to anything, uh, what would it mean to say that <laughs> you're reborn? <laughs> You know, so um, it kind of makes sense. Right. And so um, I think also so, so so if we just take it sort of as this myth that uh, isn't literally true, there's something peculiar about it in in comparison to other systems uh, uh, or, or myths about afterlife. And that is that they're saying there may be this afterlife, but they're saying it's not a good thing that that. They're saying that um, basically any reification of phenomena such that um, there is perceived to be this discrete thing that isn't empty, so to speak, um, that's going to be a source of confusion um, and that you don't want this to happen. And so, so even though conventional, traditional Buddhists, they believe in this reincarnation, um, which I think may, you know, is likely superstition, um, at, at least in its literal forms. Of course, you know, there's lots of debate about like how to interpret it, but you know, it's not really anything I pay too much attention to. But here's the thing: it's not a good thing if you're reborn. <laughs> they, the whole point of realizing that things are empty is so that we don't keep identifying with uh, things that we perceive to have substance. AKA so that we're not reborn. Now, again, to me, this is a myth. Um, but I think the interesting thing is that there's, there's not this big, Oh, Oh, we might live forever. We're going to be born. Traditional Buddhists say, Oh, you do live forever. And that's a problem. And you need to get out of, get out of the matrix, you know, by waking up, you know, now, as soon as you can, ASAP. And so, um, as a myth, that's interesting to me, you know, it's a little bit more stoic, a little bit more, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know my opinion and dare I say black pill, whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Um, it's kind of, so that's kind of what that I, falls, that falls on the secular end. Of, uh, right. Things. Right. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, um, I mean, incidentally, I have a, uh, friend of mine who is a purely secular Buddhist. So, I've had, you know, fantastic conversations with him about, you know, the philosophy and wisdom and things that go along with it. And I think that, honestly, a lot of theists uh, would do themselves good to 
read, you know, some of these mystical uh, wisdom, you know, of, of, of Eastern origins, because it kind of, it doesn't necessarily open you up to, I guess a theist, it could open up to some kind of spirituality, but it gives you a way of more understanding the self and where we fit in this reality and how we deal with the self in this reality. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I love, uh, I, for a long time, I rejected any kind of Eastern mysticism. And then the more I learned about it, it's like, it doesn't have to be mystical. There are, dare I say, pragmatic reasons, you know, to look at these uh, different philosophical and what I call ancient wisdom. Do you... Yeah. I'm sorry, do you want to say something on that? or? No, no. I was just... Okay. Do you hold to... Uh, karma, Dharma, uh, any of these. I know a lot of those are more with Hinduism, but I know there's a lot of the philosophy and mysticism that kind of bleeds over into, you know, different areas of thought in Buddhism. Yeah, so um, uh, basically um, your average New Agers and, and, and again in Hinduism, the uh, karma is going to be like this sort of cause and effect stuff. Um, typically, in uh, in Buddhist thought, um, karma is going to be um, the result of um, basically the uh, the the fixation on phenomena as having a a an intrinsic substance that and and what follows from that. So it's like I said, I can use many different systems. I'm okay with all these different systems. But if I think they're real, suddenly my attention goes away from using them. And now I try to jealously, jealously guard them and establish them as superior to the alternatives. Uh, and then I go on this fool's errand trying to refute the alternatives while trying to show that my system is the exception and can't be refuted. So, um, so where did things go south when we thought that something had this substance instead of being this uh, convention, you see? Right. And, and so, okay, yeah. So no, what, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. And so, and so what basically um, in Buddhism, karma more or less, and, 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 you know, let's grant that there's, debate about like everything just like any other field right so i can't unilaterally answer uh, uh definitively um but um a lot will say that um what they call karma is the re uh, uh result of um basically the self or the belief that there is a substantive self you see right right so, yeah absolutely um before we got too far away from reincarnation, um, I did want to quote one of the greatest philosophers of the 21st century. Um, his name is uh, Tupac Shakur. And All right. At 19 years old, he was in prison, and he did this prison interview. And he had already been shot once, and he'd been shot at, and all these things. And the person doing the interview said, 
what do you fear most about death? And I mean, without missing a beat, he said, being reincarnated and having to do this shit all over again. And I was like, you know what? That would suck. I think hell would be better than being stuck in this matrix loop of slowly but surely um, reliving life over and over until you filter out all of these um, imperfections. Is that the right word that would be used? And Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so anyway, not to get on a tangent, I just I thought that was like kind of one of the greatest insights ever. And anybody who doesn't know um, Tupac, uh, you can put your resignation to my server in my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm just playing. So, uh, so I think it goes without saying that you don't really hold to more of a realist position. I know you're not realist about anything, you're nominalist about everything, even the fact you exist. But uh <laughs> that was just a, a a quick slide in there. Do you hold oh, to that's all right. higher levels of consciousness, ultimately nirvana, or do you think this is more of a philosophical meditative kind of idea um to hold to? Okay, so um uh let's see um we're getting to this before i've gotten a chance to really explain what emptiness is which might be a prerequisite for me to answer these questions absolutely go ahead fire away oh sorry about that i forgot to turn my phone yeah so um uh the philosophy of emptiness is again some could call it a species of a non-realist philosophy but it's the idea it, it, you you could say it's a metaphysics but you could also maybe say it overlaps with morality uh, or virtue ethics and that it's the idea that phenomena lacks inherent identity um and so like i point out with these different systems of logic etc um hold on i'm uh, sorry I, I hate to cut in on you when you say f- the f- you said phenomena, like the phenomena. I said phenomena. Yeah, I said phenomena. Um, you know, that's what do you mean by it like, lacks inherent identity? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So let me give an example. Um, uh, let's say that. Um, uh, let's say we come up with a, a definition of truth uh, that we stipulate. Back to the theories of truth. Okay. Um, some of us might forget that we're supposed to use truth uh, and we might think we need to find out what the actual truth is or, or find out um, what the, the truth is that our theory of truth is representing or, you know, uh, another example, I guess. Uh, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the heap paradox for for the people in your audience who oh maybe. Oh my god! We would do we have to go with the heap? Come on, Gaspar. The best. I'm just the heap demarcation it, problem. Yeah. The the yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the idea is you know um uh how many grains of sand does it take to make a heap? And then if you're if you answer anything, the answer is why. The, the question is why. Um uh, and then. You know, it kind of becomes, I don't know, it's kind of hard to establish what a definitive heap is. And and this thought experiment is something that we could say kind of extends to most of the things that we 
define or or coin, so to speak. Um, and also, it kind of demonstrates, depending on what your takeaway is. You know, maybe maybe you're one of the people who says five hundred grains of sand. But if that's not you, then I think the takeaway is so what? I don't need to know how many grains of sand makes up a heap. And so that's what I. And so and 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 so now we are no longer concerned with whether the idea of a heap is a substantive idea. Okay. Um, and now we can focus on using the heap. However, if we try to look for the substance of what constitutes a heap, we won't find it. This is basically the same thing as the thesis ship issue that you've heard me talk about also. That, you know, how well, many that, uh, actually, that was the fir first thing that came to mind was, you know, in the problem of uh, identity, was Theseus's ship, you know, when does it stop being Theseus's, Theseus's ship? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, you take one part of your car, you replace it, and it's like, how, how many parts of your car do you replace before you're still calling it the same car? And then if you say there was a crossover point, like, why did you determine that? Uh, and, um, and if you can replace the whole car, how is this idea of you know, what the car was, something other than just this label that you were given it. And so, okay, so so that is sort of the idea. It's like if we replace every plank of Theseus's ship and we're still calling it Theseus's ship, well, then I guess Theseus's ship is just this label. And, um, you know, and, and so this doesn't matter if the ship works, in my opinion. And so this sort of, leads directly to pragmatism. But the idea with that, how this ties into emptiness, is there's not this intrinsic thesis ship that you can stipulate. The same with the, the heap. There's not this intrinsic identity of the heap. Okay? And then one of our big things that we're always trying to establish in life is, like, exactly who we are, you know, in various ways. And, um, you know, we, we yeah, we... Some, we often go through this point of discovering different parts of ourselves and there are times where we think we discovered who we are, but I think if we pay close attention in those moments where we just think we discovered who we are, it's more likely that we gave up a contrived idea of who we are in that moment. Um, at least when I reflect, that seems to be what it is. And so the, the philosophy of emptiness is um, you know, it, it extends to those other objects, like, you know, various intellectual ideas, whatever categories, but then it's, it's advocated that this is contemplated about the self as, as well. It's like you, you know, if you, if you look for the self, you're going to find the same thing you found with thesis of shit, uh, these different ideas and labels. So, um, and what's more is that if we think, well, well, okay. Well, I mean, if we think one of them is real, then, you know, we might run into the same problems that we come up with when I il illustrated someone being fixated to a certain model that and, and taking up usages that are dysfunctional. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. so the belief that the, the, the orientation that the, towards the self as being substantive is what leads to um, the dysfunctional and unintentional behavior of the ego, um, according to Buddhist thought. Because, um, you know, having an ego isn't just unsightly. We also see that people who are very egotistical um, 
you know, they're jerks, they hurt people, and um, they may be in denial that they're even doing so. Um, and then the big insult is that they may not even be aware of what asshats they look like, you know. Um, and then they're probably not happy about it. And so, uh, you know, and they have these delusions of grandeur about themselves. And they think everybody, everything's about them, and they think everybody's talking about them, and that everybody's got a conspiracy out against them. You know, it, it becomes really obvious what the problem is. It's that they're self-absorbed. Um, and the people who are on the other end of that spectrum, they don't have those problems, and they tend to, you know, have a have a certain – really simple understanding of things um but you know they they're relatable you know and um yeah so without going yeah without without going into a long filibuster does does that oh okay so that that sorry i remember i was i laid this out to so that i could first answer your questions this is not an exhaustive um explanation of emptiness i wanted to say what it was first it's the idea that phenomena lacks inherent identity but then i wanted to elaborate on it with these different examples and explanations mm -hmm. so does that at least paint a, a certain picture yeah yeah absolutely okay um, all right and so and so the idea of what's what they call nirvana or enlightenment that to me i i don't know if that's attainable that might be a highly i idealistic thing in the mythos but it's at least an ideal kind of like a straight line in geometry maybe we'll never find a straight line but we use a straight line for our lines so um what that is uh nirvana is supposedly the you know the complete realization of the of the lack of substance of the self that you know just as there's all sorts of ignorance and suffering that comes you know from the egotistical behavior there is the um uh the um opposing uh kind of insight and self-awareness that comes from someone who has more selfless qualities so does that make sense yes absolutely yeah <clears throat> yeah and so so why is this like i said it might be a metaphysics or a um uh, a, a morality or it might be overlapping is that okay so you have this idea and it, this is this kind of is the metaphysics is that phenomena lacks intrinsic identity but then but then the idea is that okay the fork in the road is are you going to realize this or not and and these are the results of realizing it or not and and that kind of directly leads into kind of examining the qualities of selflessness versus egotism uh, do you see what yes. I mean? Yes, absolutely. And I did want to make a clarification there. Um, I said the demarcation problem, which it kind of is a demarcation problem, but it's typically referred to as the gap problem. Um, <clears throat> you know, when does when does a hill become a hill? You know, at what point of walking up the rise are you no longer on the plane or the rise and you're actually on the hill? Um, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I totally, <clears throat> and just kind of a side view. I think that's why it some type of dualism is necessary. You know, um, it doesn't have to imply you know 
theism, you know, some type of, uh, it could be, uh, you know, like this, it, one could be, I'm actually kind of a minimal idealist. I think at the fundamental layer of reality is the mental. And I think pretty much all theists who hold to any kind of idea of divine conceptualism, any type of, you know, ontology for quote-unquote universals or abstracts that exist objectively. I know you're a nominalist. You wouldn't even go that route. Uh, That you have to be, you know, an uh, idealist, at least at the fundamental layer of reality. So those things aren't uh, necessarily issues for me. The gap problem... I think is it kind of and you might disagree with this but it kind of reminds me of like the trolley problem you know in in ethics or metaethics it's there's I mean a hundred different people are probably going to answer it a hundred different ways but the point of the matter is there is a point that we only have a few grains of sand. And there is a point that pretty much everybody's going to identify it as a heap of sand. Now, in between that, it doesn't mean it has to be, you know, dogmatically, objectively true that, you know, 6,231 grains of sand makes a heap. I think at some point, whether it's really a Objective or not, who's going to argue over when there's a heap and when there's not? Um, I think these are, and even though I'm a, a student of philosophy and I love philosophy, I think these are some of the thought experiments that get us so bogged down in trivial, you know, nuanced, uh, if you will, um, uh, what is what is the word I'm looking for, Gaspar? The pedantic uh, positions, you know, because I tend to agree, you know, a bit with you. At some point, some things are just pragmatic. Who gives a shit? Uh, if it works at some point, you know, it it at time T, it's not a heap, but at time T one, uh, there's a lot of sand there. And we need to refer to it as more than just a few grains of sand. It's a fucking heap. I mean, that's just, you know, that's kind of how I feel about it. Are you live? You're not lighting up. Mm. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? All right. Okay, 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 I'm back. We can't hear you, Gaspar. So, um, uh, yes, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't have any objection to what you said. Um, I, I guess really I'll just give some clarification. Um, uh, Wait a minute, what did you say person, about what a, I said? A person could say that, um, what did you say about what I said? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I agree. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought, I wasn't sure what you'd said. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Um, uh, so, 
Um, yeah, so about pragmatism and why is it not this uh, unrelated appendage? So um, back to sort of the philosophy of emptiness. I mean, if a person looked past some of the labeling or the branding, they could say that um, this this thought, this philosophy of emptiness, maybe was an earlier case of pragmatism because you know if the philosophy is that phenomena lacks intrinsic identity and that um, you know either you know if you realize this you're you're going to under, understand that phenomena versus you misunderstanding it and misusing it um, if 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 you don't know this then immediately we need an excuse to keep talking about different things. We need an excuse to say that I need to realize this. How absurd is it to say that there's an I who needs to realize that the self lacks substance? So they called this conventional knowledge um, versus actual knowledge. Um, uh, and it, it was that, okay, so the actual knowledge is that phenomena lacks this substance. But then we have to, we have to articulate, we have to use useful fictions um, despite this. But we can use these useful fictions with the knowledge that they are useful fictions, a.k.a. with the knowledge that they lack substance. You see. And so, um, and so this, this is, uh, this use of conventional knowledge is um, built in to the system of the philosophy of emptiness. It just, it just sounds so, um, oh, it sounds so nihilistic talking about a philosophy of emptiness. Um, but without getting, we're coming up on two hours, without getting bogged down in that, I did want to cover before we went um, meditation. Meditation is something that um, I find uh, extremely beneficial, extremely pragmatic for the 5,000th time. Um, And if there ever was anything that we could experience phenomenologically as spiritual, I think that proper meditation and what I mean by that is without um, interruption uh, deep long you know uh, breathing exercises um, closing out the world behind us and uh, really spending time trying to understand or realize or 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 feel if you will the inner us or whatever it is you know the because like i you know i've I've told people you know like we talked about earlier with like uh or it may have been in the general chat uh about you know uh spiritual experiences and I'm not one who talks about spiritual experiences because nobody knows my essence, you know, who I, what I experience, my qualia, my, 
what it is like to be me. And God knows I have done a lot of drugs in my life. And uh, nothing with drugs. Uh, just about every kind of, you know, uh, psychedelic, uh, hallucinogenic, whatever you want to call it. I have experienced euphoria and, you know, things like that. But the two, the two, I say two because those are the two that stand out the most to me. And I can recite them, you know, almost detail for detail, minute by minute. They were unprovoked. Uh, I wasn't looking for you know, any kind of connection with God. I wasn't necessarily thinking about God or anything like that. It was just like perfect time, perfect weather, perfect circumstances, and having this unbelievable warmth, peace, and calm come over me. And the crazy thing about it is not necessarily the feeling that I've, uh, I mean, literally a physical feeling, that I've never experienced before. But the fact that even though I wasn't like meditating on God, concentrating on God, or necessarily even thinking about God, I was literally enjoying a breeze with the sun on my face in the middle of a field. Um, I just kind of enjoying the moment. And what was striking to me was the second... I became overwhelmed with this warmth, this joy, this peace, this uh, this happiness, and, and, and I just can't explain it. I mean, smiling with tears coming out of my eyes, and, and anybody who knows me intimately, uh, you know, I was a, a toxic uber male, you know, t if there was toxic mas masculinity, that was me because that was the environment I grew up in. But what what caught me and, and what really set me aside is for some reason I immediately knew it was God. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't provoking this. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't praying. I was literally enjoying a breeze in the sun on my face. But there was this sudden... Uh, overwhelming experience and I just knew with every bit of certainty that I exist that this was God uh, whatever you want to call God it, it was it was something not of our physical reality you know I didn't speak in tongues and, and, and like heal people and make gold come out of my ass or anything like that. It was just this phenomenal emotional unprovoked response that I had. Now I've done deep meditation because I think that uh, meditation is extremely healthy mentally and physically and I've never ever now I've had some some pretty awesome meditative moments but nothing ever like that not even close nothing even close to the experiences I had on drugs um, I know the human mind is is phenomenal and has these these awesome abilities and there's so much we don't know about it and and it totally possibly could have been 
something biological. I don't know that. But being confident in the idea that a, a God exists and it's a personal God, you know, it fits perfectly well within that paradigm. But that's where I leave it. I leave it within that paradigm. So, sorry for going off on a tangent about that, but do you practice meditation? When you meditate, what is it like to you? And have you ever had like a, what you would call a spiritual experience meditating? All right. So, um, let's say I meditate, uh, approximately maybe an hour to two hours a day. Um, and okay. So the philosophy of emptiness is about not reifying phenomena. Um, there is a, I'm sorry, I'm hearing myself repeating myself back through you, Eddie. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, let me mute. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, and there, there is a, there's a Buddhist proverb and it's, um, uh, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. And the idea is, okay, maybe you didn't, maybe you haven't had certain things happen while meditating. Um, and, uh, first of all, meditation is a big catch all term. There's a lot of things people do. Some people just sit down, but there are some other sophisticated forms of it. And, um, things can happen that, uh, you know, other people might think are spiritual beings talking to them, but given the philosophy of emptiness, the, 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 the fact that things lack substance, it's advocated that if you have, you know, some kind of visions or hallucinations or whatever, that you not, that you not think that they are real. Um, and that's, more or less kind of along the lines of what it means to kill the Buddha if you see it on the road. Because what you're trying to accomplish is not to see some interesting, entertaining thing. It is to realize that this self that you identify through um, lacks substance. And it is also advocated that people don't overly conceptualize exp these experiences when they've happened. Um by talking about them too much. So one thing I think about Christians is, you know, they have something happen, you know, and often it's transformative in a good way. And then they develop these opinions about it. And then they talk, talk about it too much in my opinion. And so through meditation, I have had things happen to me that other people would call spiritual experiences, but I do not treat them as such. Um, I consider it to be, um, the sudden shift in your perception that comes from suddenly uh, suddenly seeing through maybe a certain aspect of the ego that has you've been carrying around with you your whole life. It might be, seem like you're suddenly in a different world, but that's not what it is. It's not something transcendent. It's that you know, suddenly you stop believing in some tooth fairy, so stuff's a little weird for a second. But then the result of that is that you have a better understanding of yourself and maybe other people as well. Uh, and you exhibit less of these egotistical tendencies that, uh, you know, people that, that we talk about, like with you know extreme cases, like narcissists, like, you know, maybe Trump and some other figures. So, um, uh, 
I have had these things happen, but I would not call them what you call them. I would not draw the same conclusions that you draw from them, but I'll ask you this. From the pragmatic standpoint, you would say that in your experience, well, let me ask you instead of assuming, did it have a positive effect on your behavior, like a wholesome effect, a lasting effect on your behavior thereafter, or was it a one-time thing? You there? It, yeah, it is. Um... No, it happened to me a couple times, and... Um, the first time I remember a lot of the details, but I can't honestly and, you know, transparently say there wasn't. Yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah, but, but what I really want to know is like, did it have a lasting effect on your behavior and your state of mind? Oh, absolutely. The, the second time, the one that I remember, you know, second by second, minute by minute, moment by moment as well as I can relive that, um, it had a profound impact on um, my understanding of Christianity, theism, um, and the existence of, quote-unquote, what I say, I usually say, something other. Okay. So, and I believe you. Um, I believe these things happen to people, and it's just so painfully hard to talk about and an example i like to point to um is you know before someone has had their first relationship um all the lyrics of love love songs so to speak they just don't make any sense you know and and you know, i remember before i had had my first relationship i thought it was pretentious bullshit love songs you know because you know they talk about some weird things that don't make any sense, you know all these weird feelings. But then after you've had your first relationship, maybe your first breakup, suddenly it all makes sense, right? And so certain things and certain mythologies can start to make sense once a person has maybe had something happen like what has happened to you, um, and like what I'm saying has happened to me. Although I won't draw the same conclusions from them, like oh, there's this other side of if there's just transcendent reality, because to me, that is straying from the the idea that uh, phenomena lack substance, uh, and we're starting to engage in re- reification and objectification of things, you know? And so we're getting back up into that kind of egotistical behavior there, uh, where we, you know, want to cling to shiny objects like Gollum. So do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, totally get what you're saying. Uh, so, and oh, oh, and let me say this: if the conclusions you draw from those things um, aren't right, I would say it doesn't matter if it's had the effect on someone's behavior that you're saying it does. And and you know, I take your word for it because I've had some, I've had something happen to me, uh, a shift in perspective that was almost like you know, taking off a pair of sunglasses that you've been wearing your whole life, suddenly seeing. It's the same world, just different. But what I like about the philosophy um, uh, of emptiness is we are not under any pressure to say that this is some transcendent meaning. This is just what it, this is the real result of, you know, for a moment seeing through the self, you know. And so, uh, it's 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 basically just going from delusion to less delusion. So 
that's less glamorous than spiritual, but, um, you know, it's paramount, right? Especially if uh, the main problem with humans is their egos. So that's how I look at it. And so um, I wouldn't reify it into saying that it is a spiritual experience, although I suspect it's the same thing that happens to many people of many different cultures and even some people who have no religion. They have sometimes this spark happens in their mind and they have a perspective shift. Uh, and it's so hard to talk about, you know, but then they change in noticeable ways. And so some people say you shouldn't talk about it. If you really want to share that with other people, then you have to embody the values that came from that. So like the ways that it changed your behavior and, and things like that. Um, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, they say, they would say, don't talk at length about your, your experiences, but from those experiences come a certain natural uncontrived compassion. And that's what you, that's what you give to people. If you want to, um, help open their minds and, uh, you know, help sh shed people's biases. You see? Right. Right. Um, well, so it's arranged different. It's it's, yeah. it's it's like arranged differently, but so this, yeah, yeah. So so I don't want to I don't want to ramble, but that that's what I think about I was that. Say, so my, if you go too much further, you're going to lose me because I get it right now. But okay, all right, all right. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. just me. <laughs> Anybody who wants him to keep going, you can DM me, and I'll dump it in the. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let you go on to the next question. That's <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think you. I mean, you and I have had you know uh, a lot of conversations, deep conversations, and some kind of. You may not remember. I think a few of them you had quite a bit to drink, but um, we had <laughs> we had some great conversations. So I I feel like I came into this at least twenty five to thirty five percent understanding where you were coming from so that extra little bit of you know 25 to 30 percent kind of gets me over there um i'm getting further away from thinking that um you're a fruit loop and more <laughs> i'll just play i love you uh so let's do this gaspar <clears throat> since we're over two hours i want to do round two of kind of a rapid fire questions now obviously um everything that you give to this is going to be oversimplified and it will not be held against you in court um but if you feel like it's something you need to nuance go ahead um what do you think about drug-induced spiritual uh, moments such as psychosyllabin where there have been uh, and even I think it's peyote and a few others that have had a phenomenal amount of positive life-changing experiences under and this is for all of my audience and everybody that's listening under controlled laboratory it, uh, experiences with professionals giving it to them. 
Go ahead, Gaspar. Um. Uh. So. I guess I will give uh, two answers. First, the one first. I've I'm not an expert on this, but you know I've done a little bit of research on it. I've watched some interesting documentaries, and I don't find anything about it to be unbelievable. Um, so, uh, uh, it sounds like uh, like I watched a documentary. I think it was called Fantastic Fungi or something. Uh, this guy takes uh, psilocybin, and he, you know before that he had a stutter, and then his stutter just permanently went away. All right. I believe that, you know, I've heard of people just, you know, quitting their addictions. Um, and then the second answer is, um, I'd question any metaphysical conclusions drawn from that. And I, I actually would agree with you on that. Um, I think it's something I'm one of the few theists who actually endorse methodological <laughs> naturalism in the sciences. Um, I don't like the, you know, um, the reductionist that's, you know, kind of like a fundamentalist reductionist. They're like an, uh, an ultimate reductionist. Everything reduces down to biology and things like that. I think that there's plenty of room in the philosophy of mind and everything else to talk about emergent properties or, you know, some kind of um, property dualism. You don't even have to go all the way to substance dualism. There's all kinds of ways we can explain that without having to go to this, you know, uh, almost what I would consider like a fallacious reductionist view. Um, so uh, with that, uh, I think that you, given the, the small amount of consciousness, I mean, we, we can't even define consciousness. You take 50 people and line them up and you ask them what consciousness is. You can take 50 experts and line them up. And ask them what consciousness is. What qualifies as self-awareness? Well, you know, the, the weakest test is the self-awareness test where they look in a mirror and they recognize themselves. That's about as far as we can go with it. We can draw correlations with neuroscience, uh, brain mapping, um, you know, activity in the brain of different uh, uh, neurotransmitters and neural pathways. But we can't explain neuroplasticity. We can explain cognitive behavioral therapy where your thought pattern actually changes the physical structure of your brain. Um, there's so many things about the human mind. Uh, even if some kind of monism is true or monism is true, and it is some kind of emergent property from the brain, that in itself... Uh, dare I say, would be some kind of miracle. And I don't mean that in a theistic, you know, uh, way. It's, you know, getting this carbon-based life, uh, this materialistic, non, you know, uh, non-animate, you know, inanimate objects. It, it literally, um, you know, molecules and atoms and all of these different uh, elements that are used to uh, construct life from quote-unquote chance, and I won't even get into that word because the whole 
how chance can have causal power that really just that, that boggles my mind anyway uh dig- i digress uh how do we get from rocks dust dirt molecules all these different things non-animate non-moral agents to a species um, never mind the fact species like us but even anything biological um, we look at the complexity of DNA and RNA, and, you know, we have the chicken and the egg problem. Was it RNA first? Was it DNA first? How does RNA, you know, come together without the protective coating like DNA has? How does it just come together from some soup? Why, or, or all of life has, and I'm not opposed at all to getting some kind of working, you know, theory of a biogenesis, evolution, uh, we could have a theory from one to the other. I don't think it implies theism or uh, negates theism. But one of the most intriguing factors there is all of what we consider life has, uh, sometimes I get this confused, so I may be wrong, somebody can correct me, but it's left-handed amino acids. Everything without life has right-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids the branch chain amino amino acids are plentiful throughout everything that we know but it just so happens we have to have left-handed amino acids in order to have what we quote-unquote call life so when i look at all these things even if i wasn't a theist I'm thinking, you know, some kind of Bernardo Castro's um, objective uh, pantheism, like a naturalistic pantheism. I'm thinking of there's got to be at least consciousness fundamental or there has to be something. We don't even have to call it a God, but something that exists even either as a composite of the whole of reality that kind of gave rise to this. Or it's pure chance, materialism, reductivism that has so many philosophical problems. So when you look at these, like, you know, the problem of free will, a lot of people say, oh, free will is just illusory or it's not real and all that. There's a reason they call it a problem of free will. We have an intuition that we seem to be able to control our behaviors, regardless if we truly can or not, is a different topic. But it seems though we can. We have the problem of uh, consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness. How does this seemingly immaterial, abstract, or emergent property interact with the physical? We have um, the identity problem, the thesis theseus's ship you were talking about what is it about the human is there anything there given cell replication in so many years i'm not the same person i was biologically you know 10 years ago so if i knock off you know the local liquor store you know because i want to go buy some crack or you know hook up with gas bar and get get some hose or something like that. Uh, <laughs> that's not me now. So if the legal 
process took until now to get here, oh, I'm literally not biologically the same person. So how do we keep identity over time if there's not something immaterial? How do you, Gaspar, answer all of these quote-unquote philosophical problems? And here's the, here, here's the caveat and the catch to it. You can't dismiss them and say they're not problems. I know you're a nominalist. I know you, for for fairness, um, I know you probably would go to some type of, like we've been talking about pragmatism or, you know, something like that. And you defend that position well. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with your position. But I want to know when that's off the table, how does Gaspar defend his position without saying I just don't care about them or it's just not pragmatic given the way that you live your life every day and how you view existence in the human experience itself all right so real quick can you just clarify sorry that that ended up that, that was that had a lot of stuff so can you real quick just what questions you want me to answer yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I you know I kind of get into um interviewer want to be super deep, great, you know, guy with all these great questions and things and I get tangential. Uh is it tangential? Is that the right word? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh, I love you, Gaspar. So, um how does Gaspar approach the hard problem of consciousness? How does Gaspar approach um, the identity problem, how we obtain identity over time? Um, how does Gaspar approach um, at least the illusion of free will? Um how do you approach what all of these things that are considered philosophical problems without appealing to nominalism, pragmatism, or just not caring? How would you approach it? And and if those are your positions, it's totally fair to say I'm I'm going outside of my position just to answer it on your terms. But how would you approach that if those were off the table? Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, if you take away pragmatism, uh, okay. So, if you take away pragmatism, you took away um, something like, uh, like say, the philosophy of emptiness that I I've talked about. My default go-to would be solipsism, uh, and that was kind of my only real thing I believed before I discovered. Or this philosophy and so it's the idea that like you know i don't know anything other than my mind uh and 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 that and so I, all i know is that i exist um that's the degree of skepticism i would prefer um but i don't think that that skepticism goes far enough because and i guess this gets to the identity well i'm gonna knock it out first one by one so if we go back to solipsism and we say, okay, this world could be a dream, but at least I know I exist. That 
perspective. Oh, and they call this, right, the problem of solipsism. It's like a problem for all other views because, you know, it's it's hard to establish anything else, but this is the view you can arrive at if you doubt everything and clean the slate. So from the solipsistic perspective, the hard problem is, well, you said I can't say it's not a problem, but I'd ha there's a point where I'd have to start telling you beliefs I don't hold. <laughs> yeah, but that that's fair. It, that's that's I was just <laughs> I I know your uh, I mean I'm trying to explain it in words that aren't repetitive because yeah. I think that's what you're trying to avoid. <laughs> yeah, it's and I understand your position is, you know, pragmatism, nominalism, you know, screw all the isms. Let's let's, you know, look at life and see how things fit into this box and experience a life and what we can make of it. Uh, yeah. So, so let me finish. Let me finish. I'm trying, trying to yeah, do yeah, what I, I just, yeah. yeah, it's all right. Um, so there's the issue of, so from the solipsistic perspective that, you know, this world, all I can know is my mind uh, or my, you know, and I'm dreaming it up. Then part of the dream is, the material world and so the problem of uh, the hard problem is not a problem there you see um and i know that that doesn't satisfy what you said but like you know i, I don't want to get into actually trying to make up ideas that like are not positions i hold so i tried to avoid saying oh yeah um uh you know different philosophies of mind are useful in different cases and i decided to paint this picture here because it shows that the the heart problem is only a problem if, when you assume material in my opinion is not a problem for the solid system and then the second one is the identity problem the identity problem is why i'm not a solipsist if we engage in all that doubt and say oh look you know i don't want to make any assumptions all i can know is that you know i exist it's like well that's half-assed skepticism because the, you left that one stone unturned, and that's the you that you're saying exists. So why don't you, why don't we, why don't we investigate what that is and see if it's exempt to this heap problem or the the ship problem? Um, um, and so uh, it's kind of like the completion of solipsism is what you could say emptiness is because 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 you know the solipsist says oh. Well, all of phenomena is something in in my mind, and all, all I know to exist is you know myself. But then, if you go further and say, "Okay, well, well, who is this self?" You just come up with other heaps of sand, basically. Other, other, you know. Oh, am I my memories? Oh, am I my thoughts? Oh, who knows? Those are changing all the time. So who the heck am I? You know, um, it's basically back to Theseus' ship, and so then. Um, then you realize, okay, so the different identities I conceive of, th those are part of the appearances and, um, the, you know, the, the self that I think exists, I may not be able to establish it. So I may not be able to, well, well, it's the one thing that I thought existed. So I may not be able to establish substance of this world. Um, so, so. In one way, you could arrive at this philosophy that I'm pointing to by removing everything, including the solipsistic self. So you could say the sol solipsism isn't skeptical enough. 
Um, and, and because it's only a half-assed skeptical endeavor, it ends up being as dysfunctional as we know solipsism to be. But emptiness is, is more functional than solipsism for the reasons that I've stated earlier. Now, the other question, and so I've at least given you some, some answer to, the, to those two questions without talking about pragmatism. And then the third question you brought up, which um, was – what was the third question? Uh, Eddie? Um, shit, I don't know. Um. <laughs> uh, in one of the audience, I remember what the third question is. Sorry, it slipped my mind. Uh, it's okay. It, it slipped mine too. It's uh, I, they, Well, I, I, I kind of put you in a hard position, you know, to try to – I. After listening to you, you know, try to explain these positions um, from a perspective that you don't hold yourself, um, you know, I kind of realized. Well, I give you another. I didn't make any. I didn't make anything up. I told you things that I actually think. I just right. use different words. So um, yeah, I, I well, I those are things say, that I, I think. Like, I th- I think it was a bit unfair. Um, no, it's trying, okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I you know I was trying to get, um, I guess how you would approach it, you know, outside of nominalism or um, pragmatism or something like that. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, if and I know that is your position, you've defended it well, and we've had many a conversation. So I think that um, that part was probably a little bit unfair. Um, on my end, I just wanted to see kind of how you would come at it if, okay, yeah, if that wasn't your position, but I must say this, okay, when you said material world, it made me think of our next unofficial sponsor. So hang tight for one second. 